and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. <laughs> Hello, guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I'm your host, Mark Kaler. And today we have retired Coast Guard Captain Chris Woodley with us. How are you today, Chris? Great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, probably going to change it up just a little bit today, but we'll stay in the, pretty much the same format. Let's just go with where were you born, how were you raised, what brought you to the fishing industry, or rather the Coast Guard sure. in general? So um, I'm from a military family. My dad was in the Air Force. I was uh, actually born in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, so I'm damn near Canadian. Uh, and you know we moved all over the country like military families do, and we moved up to Alaska in 1973. Um, and so I ended up living in Alaska in, in Anchorage and Eagle River um, for grade school, junior high, and high school. And you know, was never really experienced to the or exposed to the sea or anything like that uh, when I was living in Anchorage. Um, but when I uh, when I uh, graduated from high school and went to school in Oregon, I started going out to the Oregon coast, and that was my first exposure to the Coast Guard. And so I actually. Um, joined the Coast Guard right uh, um, right after the Exxon Valdez happened because I was an Alaska kid and you know the, the you know trying to um, I wanted to be involved in like oil spill cleanup and things like that so that that was the the first thing that drew me to the Coast Guard that impacted you yeah totally yep yep so right off and signed up and yeah I mean it, it took about a year to get in but uh, um, signed up and I was the uh, um, I was the number four alternate for my class which is like you know have a better chance of hell freezing over than getting down so low in the barrel is to pick the number four alternate but miracles happen and and i uh, uh went to officer candidate school in 1990 and was your entire desire to serve in alaska um you know the funny thing was is i thought uh, i had uh, um right after uh, uh we got married my my wife and i went down to tahiti for our honeymoon that's and lisa I re- yeah that's lisa and i really really love the tropics um and so my first thought was is i was going to somehow end up in you know like in, in the tropics where it was warm and sunny and then i spent the next 22 years in the north pacific so <laughs> there you go but my final tour i, I was in uh, i got to spend two years in hawaii Excellent. So, which is what I signed up for in the first place. Your very beginning. <laughs> so, uh, Coast Guard for 25 years, you said? 24 years, 24 yeah. 24 years. Yeah. What was the first year? What? Uh, 1990, June of 1990. Okay, so way way back. And yeah. The, and the safety's changed a lot since then. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, uh, when did you start going to Alaska? Um, I was first transferred up to Alaska in 1993, in summer of 1993, and that my first, uh, as a... Um, marine inspection, uh, marine inspector trainee. The first thing I learned how to do was inspect life rafts, um, and uh, learned to do fishing vessel safety exams. And uh, so I traveled all over South Central Alaska, Kodiak, um, Aleutian Islands, Bering Sea, doing fishing vessel safety exams. And that's when I first really fell in love with the fishing industry because I was fascinated by the people and the boats and the you know the the, the fishery management stuff, it was all, you know, just really compelling for me. I'm going to put a time warp on you here. Okay. I want you to go to a, a safety raft in 1993 uh-huh. and one now. What are some major differences? 
Um, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think there's a lot of changes in, in raft technology. Um, I haven't really inspected a raft in a, in a really long time, but, um, I, I think that they're generally the, you know, the same, they're probably better materials, um, is, is probably the, the, the big thing. Um, you know, way back when, when I was inspecting them, those are really the first generation of, of, of life rafts, um, for, for fishing vessels and for survival gear for fishing vessels. So you had, um, um, you know, survival suits, rafts, EPIRBs, that, that kind of equipment and all that equipment's gotten better. I think, uh, you know, better, uh, over time, um, and people certainly uh, use it a lot more. I think it's become a lot more functional for people. That that's a big thing, you know. I, back, I think back then they weren't really training it. I mean, there's the wrap, but they weren't really. They were starting to have the drills. Right. They were starting to. But I remember my first time on a boat was 1992, and we did the safety drills. But I couldn't have told you where right. the raft was. You know, um, yeah, and I think that I think that's right. I mean, part of the. You know, when you talk about changes in, in you know, or, or safety, 1990 was when the Coast Guard's fishing vessel um, or the Fishing Vessel Safety Act started going into into effect. It was 1990, 1991, and so it was a new thing. So when I got came into the Coast Guard in '93, things were just starting to get a little bit of traction, and and the big focus at the time was just making sure that the the stuff was on board, the safety equipment, right? So the the raft, the the EPIRB, the survival suits, but it was, and even though training was part of the the regulatory requirements, um, I think it took a while for uh, uh, for for training to really catch on. You've got some really great organizations here, like in uh, Seattle, like North Pacific Fishing Vessel Owners Association, or up in Alaska, um, AMSI, the uh, Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, um, and uh, you know their efforts combined with a lot of interest from the industry really started to you know kind of raise the you know, raise the standard on, on, on vessels, you know, vessel safety, vessel training, uh, or, or safety training. So, um, I think people are a lot more active with it now than they ever were in the past. What was in the emergency kit on a raft? Was it food? I mean, yeah. So, uh, the, 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 these horrible little blocks of, uh, um, uh, of food, they're basically just like a mixture of butter, flour and sugar really crumbly you know just just imagine like really like dried out bad tasting cookie dough that that's what it was and you know each little block had like you know 2000 calories or something like that you had packets of water um flares fishing hooks signaling mirrors um god what else is in those those kits um knives uh so a lot of a, a lot of stuff that they've you know kind of figured out over the years could be useful if you're you know um, going to be in a raft for a while. I want to go back to the block. Yeah. Okay. So two thousand calories—that's just to sustain you. It's not you're not trying to right. Yeah. You're I, gonna enjoy I, it at all? No, no. It's it's definitely it's it's not something you're going to enjoy eating. Um, and how yeah, many I mean, have you eaten? We used to taste them just for laughs, <laughs> and they're not very good. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, if you're really in a raft, you know, in like a, you know, a, um, you know, no shit kind of situation, um, you're not going to be hungry. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be seasick. You're going to be rolling around with a bunch of other guys. You, you know, you're going to be puking. It's kind of a, you know, uh, th those standards for, for that, that kind of equipment are, are, you know, international standards are kind of based on the assumption that you're going to be out there and alive for a long time. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's not really typically the case in the North Pacific, just because of the it's, cold it's waters. It's really not. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's important to have, but, you know, you're, you're not going to be bouncing around out there for, for, for 10 days or two weeks. You're it's hoping, very rare. You're hoping yeah. for a few hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you're not out of there in a couple of hours, you're you're in trouble, yeah. real trouble. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really that way, too, especially if you got wet. Yeah. I mean, uh, being in the raft is great. Right. But if you're in the raft wet, it's yeah. still, you got a problem. Right, right. You still have the, the issue of hypothermia um, and, and, you know, that, that cold water just sucking all the heat out of your body. Yeah. Yeah. And you've gotten into the suits before. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. Not, they're not yeah. comfortable. No, they're not comfortable. They're, they're harder than they are, the swimming. They are buoyant. <laughs> yeah, they, they'll, they'll, they'll keep you bouncing around. Um, I mean, fit is really important uh, on, on survival suits. That's always been a thing that, you know, we really stress in the Coast Guard is you had to have a suit that fits you. You know, there's, you know, a number of times where uh, people have been abandoning ship and the, the suit that they grab is either not their suit or they haven't put on their suit in a while, and maybe they've gotten, you know, a wee bit larger uh, mm-hmm. since the last time they put it on. And so Too you many can't... of those little blocks. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, fit was always really important, making sure it wasn't too big or too small, because, we wanted, you know, you need to be mobile enough to, 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 to you know, if you're going to have to um, get into the raft, I mean, that's hard. If you haven't, you know, if you come down to the survival suit races at the fall fisherman's festival here in seattle at fisherman's terminal and uh and watch you know highly trained people get into a raft it's hard those guys take it serious oh yeah they they they, they train they practice oh i know yeah 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 Yeah, it's hard yeah i coached a couple of those teams over the years and it's uh i think the coast guard even puts a team in every year don't they yeah yeah i don't think they've won no no (laughs) one year tried and Trident Seafoods is the you know they're they're the bomb. I mean they 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 really really work hard uh, at, at the at that competition. I think they start recruiting in January. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they hire they bring on people who are like part sea lion to. You know. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about before we get into some sea stories. Sure, which you're going to have some uh, response stories, especially. But um, you've seen the industry change from '93 to current. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in maritime industry changes? Right. Well, I think the, you know, when I first started going out to um, to Dutch Harbor in 93, you know, you'd, you know, the big thing that had happened before that in the ground fish fisheries in particular was a transition from uh, joint venture, you know, fo- foreign vessels, processors primarily to joint venture fisheries and then to a full on U.S. fishery by like 1990, 1991. Um, and following that, you know, after the full Americanization of the fisheries, you know, you, you had a lot of overcapitalization, um, a lot, you know, the, the big issue they had was, uh, you know, racing to fish. So, um, over, you know, the, the, the biggest transformation that I've seen from an industry perspective, from an economic perspective has been, um, you know, moving from an open access fishery where you're racing to fish to a limited access fishery where you're still racing to fish and then moving to a quota-based fishery where each each vessel or each company gets their own allocation of of how much they can catch which is stop the race for fish and you know um obviously change the safety measures too then it, it really it, yeah i mean it really feeds into the safety stuff um you know uh on on the safety side of things with the the, the fishing vessel safety requirements um 
you know, the Coast Guard and a lot of this is work that I did uh, started focusing more on on addressing fishery spe- regional or fishery specific safety issues like with the with the Bering Sea crab fleet because they had such an enormous problem in the early 1990s um, or, or throughout the 1990s I should say and so by you know kind of targeting safety interventions with with certain fishing fleets combined with the positive safety effects of of fishery rationalization, you know, that the, um, and then a lot of other things, you know, improve safety training, just the fact that a lot of these guys, you know, um, who are still in the fisheries, you know, they, they've all grown up, right? They, they're, 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 they're older, they're wiser, they have families. Um, so, you know, I think they just pay a lot more attention to, to those kinds of things now. You said specific changes that you helped instrument. Yeah. Uh, specifically for the crab fleet, right. what, what do you mean by that? What, well, the of... yeah, well, the, the big thing that we that uh, we and when I say we, there was a, a group of us um, who kind of started this project is, is throughout the 1980s, 90s, um, the Bering Sea crab fleet had a, a very serious safety issue. Um, you know, it was it was not uncommon every year for for one or two boats to go down with all hands. Um, and usually those were capsizing events at the start of the usually the start of the the, the winter fishery, the opelio fishery, and um, from ice. Well, it was it was a combination of things, but a lot of it was due to vessel loading and how many pots they were carrying. Mm-hmm. And what I did when I was in graduate school, going here to University of Washington, I just finished up a tour in Dutch Harbor, came down here to um, uh, to, to go to graduate school, and. Uh, started looking at the the casualty statistics and what we found with a with a lot of those capsizing events was a lot of boats were overloaded so overloaded or fully loaded boats departing dutch harbor with a full stack you know full stack of gear in the winter fisheries um and because it was a race to fish at the time you know very aggressive fishing you know people weren't slowing down for weather people weren't slowing down you know they were just like you know full tilt boogie man so they uh, um, and and there were a lot of you know um, really significant capsizing events. So um, after investigating several of those, you know one of the things that you do after a, a Bering Sea crabber rolls over as an investigator is you go out and you try to figure out how many pots are carrying and how much the pots weighed. And after doing this a couple of times, um, it occurred to me that why are we asking these these questions after the fact? Why wouldn't we, as a Coast Guard organization, an organization that is, wants to prevent accidents from happening, why wouldn't we go on board the boats before they leave port? And if they're overloaded, oh, so you're the guy that makes yeah, that happen. Yeah, no, I'm I'm that guy. I was the guy that started that that thing back in um, 1999. Again, it was a group of us, but uh, and started. You know, we'd bring a team of of Coast Guard people first year we did it was 1999 um into dutch harbor and we just go on the boats and it's like i want to want to see your stability letter and we're going to count pots because um you know anybody can count and with when when you're looking at stability letters it's actually a pretty um pretty easy practice you can get be go on board 
generally check the loading, spot check uh, safety equipment, and be out of there in 15-20 minutes. So it's not disruptive. It's not like an at-sea boarding, which is going to take like two or three hours because they're going to go through a whole laundry list of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it was a pretty quick thing. We could move quickly from vessel to vessel to vessel. And what we found in the first year, the first time we did it, was holy shit. These boats, there are some boats that are overloaded, like no joke overloaded. And so we... Um, At that point, did you have the authority, well, Coast Guard, but could you say you need to take 50 yeah, pots off? Yeah, and so that that was part of the lead up. So this just wasn't a Coast Guard idea. I mean, we worked with, with the crab industry down here um, in Seattle time it was uh, uh, Alaska Crab Coalition. Uh, we worked with the uh, vessel safety programs, North Pacific Fishing Vessel Owners Association. We worked with Alaska Department of Fish and Game. We worked with naval architects and other leaders in, in the crabs industry to see, you know, ask the question, is this a good idea? And would you support it? And when the answer was yes, then we went out and, you know, executed it. You know, we had the authority to say, you know, you have a stability letter that says you can carry 150 pots you have 175 so either 25. either you get a new stability letter you get your naval architect to say that you know that for whatever reason you know th this you letter is wrong yeah. um or you're going to have to pull off pots and so uh did you, you know, notice a change immediately like that boom it, it was it, the, the first time we did the the, the the first year we did it the first day we did it the first morning we did it we found two boats that had too many pots. And as we were driving around, you know, sort of like tell these guys, pull their pot, you know, pull this extra gear off. And as we were driving around to like, you know, the next place in Dutch Harbor or to Unisee or Westward or wherever we were going next, we're noticing it's like, instead of pots coming on the boat, they're which is what up. happens, they're going the other way. It's like, oh, uh, this is interesting. Yeah. So, well, um, fishermen can't keep their mouth shut. Well, yeah, and and they they're immediately on the radios with these other. Oh, these Coast Guard, blah blah blah. You know, they they came over here. They made me pull off pots, and you know, so word traveled really quickly. And I think because we'd done a lot of legwork up front with the industry, and they were you know they were um, generally very very supportive of it. Um, you know, we report. You know, we we did this for like three days. We got about half the fleet in Dutch Harbor. That was kind of our goals. You know, if if you know, like a coin flip as to if if the Coast Guard's going to be on your boat or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the industry was really supportive of it. They were supportive of it in front of the fishery North Pacific Fishery Management Council, and they asked us to come out again in January. And so, it just became, you know, a twice a year thing. I don't with the think Coast Guard you can actually leave now. It. Well, yeah, and so that was that was one of the things that uh, that came out as a as a result of the work that so 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 backing up for a second. So we started that in 1999. Up to that point, one to two Bering Sea crabbers were capsizing and sinking with all hands every year and killing between you know twelve and five, yeah, tw yeah, twelve, fourteen people. In 1999, the, the, the last boat that capsized was in March of um, 99. It was the Lin J. It was a Kodiak-based boat. Um, five guys got killed. We started it in October of, of 1999, and there was not another capsizing until January of 2005. So five years that had never, ever, ever happened before where you didn't have that kind of, you know, those kind of accidents. Yeah. yeah. 
And when in January of 20, uh, uh, 2005, that was the Big Valley, another Kodiak-based yep. boat. Um, boat. I, I, you know, um, I knew Gary uh, Edwards, the owner of the boat. Um, I talked to him two nights before the boat sank. You know, he knew we were out there. Um, we were doing the dockside safety checks. Um, and uh, we knew we wanted to get on uh, on Gary's boat. He had had stability issues in the past with the boat. Um, you know, we the Coast Guard had made him write, you know, come up with new stability letters things like that and uh um but he he it, it wasn't a requirement you know it, it wasn't like you had to wait in port till the coast guard got down there but if the coast guard got down to your boat then you know you needed to go through it um he left port uh, a little bit early um no coast guard involvement and um he was allowed to carry he put his bait up top too right I, you know, I don't recall. He, he had too much bait. I think he was allowed 2,000 pounds of bait on the boat, and I think when they departed, it was like 13,000 pounds. I think he had it on top of his house. Could even. be. Yeah. Could be, yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, the boat was allowed to carry um, 31 600-pound pots, and I think he left with 56 850-pound pots. So way, so, yeah. pretty, pretty heavy at that point. And you were, but you, you had him on radar. And you yeah, yeah, him. but you know, I mean, you can't, you can't be every place all the time. No, no, you can't, you can't. And during that period too, that that was when the uh, um, the Selendang IU, uh, which was a big uh, um, a soybean carrier, had uh, gone aground uh, on on Alaska Island, broken in half. Six guys had gotten killed in the crew. It was a big, big oil spill out there. So I mean, Coast Guard resources were very much folk i mean even though you still had people doing these dockside stability checks the real focus was on the selling iu cleanup which is you know this you know huge amount of work and uh yeah you know i mean uh, uh has the, the coast boat guard, sank so has the coast guard resources changed much i mean is there a lot more resources up there in alaska now than they used mm. to or does it require less <sighs> there you know, I don't really know. Um, I mean, I, I believe there are most, more Coast Guard resources up there now than there have been in the past. I mean, you know, part of what the Coast Guard's done through the modernization of their assets and equipment is, you know, you, you probably don't need as much stuff to do the same job. Um, but at the same time, Alaska was probably kind of under, you know, under-equipped uh, anyways. Um, but, I mean, the, the Alaska Congressional Delegation has done a real, real great job in, um, you know, funding the Coast Guard and making sure they've got the resources up there, especially with the stuff that's going on in the Arctic right now, um, uh, you know, improving the Coast Guard search and rescue capabilities farther in, in northwest Alaska, um, and then, you know, bringing in a lot of new vessels there. So, you know, I, I would imagine um, it, it's probably better than it was. Uh, and certainly personnel-wise, I mean, you know, when I was at Marine Safety Detachment in Alaska, we had four people there. I think they have like eight now. So twice as much. Twice as much, yeah. Twice as much fun to have. No, these uh, <laughs> these uh, stability issues still come up. I mean, yeah. destination. Destination. That that was a, you know I um I testified uh, at the destination hearing. Um, and, you know, I mean, the NTSB has released uh, their report. The Coast Guard still hasn't released theirs. But, um, you know, one of the things with the destination was is that they, their assumption was the pots weighed 700 pounds, but they were 850 pounds. 
and they care. They were had a lot of additional bait on board. Um, well, and ice can come around. And say, well, yeah, and, and and so so you know, so 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 going into a bad icing situation when you're fully loaded or overloaded. I mean, the Coast Guard stability analysis on this, it's uh, you know, it's it's been published. The final report hasn't come out, but the actual stability analysis for that boat was that it was overloaded. Um, and that's not that's not a Chris Woodley opinion. That's uh, that's that's a U.S. Coast Guard black and white official you know letter on that. So, um, yeah. So it, it still happens, um, but it's certainly less frequent than it ever was. I mean, over over that you know from 1999 till um, till the destination sank. What is that? 17 years. Yeah, yep. Two boats in 17 years. You used to get two boats a year, so you know. Do the math on that. I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's no, an enormous enormous difference. I'm, I'm going to pull you out of the yeah. safety mode. Sure. Okay. Sorry. Got fired no, up. No, no, no. That's great. That's great. That's why you're on here. It's, it's important to this industry. But now I'm going to I'm going to take you to the sailor mode. Okay. Uh, when you're hearing a distress call come in, or uh, what's the what is the most impactful, scariest distress call you've had to listen to or respond? Ooh. To? So I I never worked at like a comm station Kodiak which is where the actual radio call comes in right um, but uh, you know the the, the ones that uh, that that really um, jumped to the front of my mind were the uh, uh, don't know if you know about the the, the fishing vessel galaxy it was a freezer longliner uh, owned by Aleutian spray down here in seattle and they had a uh, um, massive uh, uh, ex- fire and explosion on board the boat in 2002 and uh, again i didn't i didn't actually hear the uh, the radio call but the um at the time um when the coast guard still had a loran station in saint paul um they were, it was in October, it was October 20th of uh, 2002, so they, you still had the Red King crab fishery going on, and part of what the Coast Guard, the, the local Coast Guard there was doing was manning a radio watch. And uh, just frickin', you know, uh, miracle and atmospherics and radio transmission, but this boat, the the uh, the Galaxy, had had this uh, you know this enormous explosion, um, this fire, and the uh, the radios in in the wheelhouse. I mean, they actually like, melted off the walls, right? And the only thing they had was this handheld VHF, and the cap. And this is you know the Galaxy was like a, you know, a pretty uh, high ship. Um, 30 40 feet at the, the top of it and the captain was able to trans uh, transmit a mayday call with this handheld radio from 30 miles away they were over 30 miles away from st paul and they and usually the range on that is like line of sight like 10 miles 12 miles on a really good sometimes day sometimes i can't hear my wife and she's yeah on the, she's on the stern yeah. so yeah Thir- oh, i think it was like 35 miles away and they picked it up and, it's like, and so when you um, and they I, I don't recall if they actually had the call recorded because it wasn't a real search and rescue station or not but the uh, um, the captain uh, of, of the galaxy uh, sorry uh, Dave shoemaker um, 
you know, when we were doing the hearings on the galaxy, he repeated his Mayday call. It's just like, I mean, just like, you know, just, sorry, yeah. uh, blew you away. Yeah. Um, because, Mayday calls are scary. Yeah, yeah, and because they had, you know, a boat that was on fire, 26 people on board, three guys in the water at that time, um, and just... You know, and the boat was completely engulfed in flames, and and the crew was. What would cause the explosion? Um, so I, I was the one that did the uh, the investigation on the galaxy. I I led the the formal investigation. Um, you know, we had two weeks of hearings, three weeks of hearings down here in Seattle, and ultimately, what we think happened was well, the, the explosion was a backdraft explosion. You know, you've seen. Which are really rare on boats. Yeah, right. Yeah, so people have seen the movie. There, those kinds of explosions are really rare on vessels, um, or at least not written much about in the scientific literature. But uh, we think that it was probably a um, uh, what they noticed in the minutes before the explosion is that the the hotel generator, the generator that supplies the power, dropped off. And the guess is, is that, that you know, the, the, the fuel supply to the generator somehow got parted. I mean, there's theories that may have been, you know, um, uh, impact from a big wave. You know, maybe a pipe just failed. I mean, that happens too. Hose but it sprayed. And... Yeah, but hose fitting came off. But, it, you know, um, it sprayed atomized fuel in the engine room all over the place. Um, usually that'll start a fire immediately. Um, my theory on it was it was a really well insulated engine room, so it took longer to find the you know the hot enough spot to to uh, um, to, to actually start a fire. But when it did, um, there was a lot of fuel in there, and then oxygen got introduced and it and exploded and blew the fire team um, off the boat into the water. Those were the three. Yeah, those, those were the three. Yep. Yeah. Uh, is it all survived? No. No. Um, trying to remember uh the first mate didn't survive um the other two guys got uh um got rescued but then um they ended up uh what two hours later hour and a half later having to abandon ship and one of the guys who was on the fire team who'd already been in the water once went back in the water again and he saved somebody else so 26 on board yep. one lost life uh three three and then another guy um, was uh, was killed. Uh, an, another freezer freezer longliner um, was involved in the search, and uh, a guy got killed. Uh, he he went out on deck and got washed overboard during oh, the search. Trying to, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they were trying so to secure the raft. Season. Yeah, yeah. It, it was October, 50, 60 knot winds. You know, um, big waves. You know, another shitty day. Shitty day in the Bering Sea. Sure. Or yeah. every other day, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, depends on which captain you're right. talking to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things have uh, things have definitely changed. At least from my perspective on the fishing side. Mm. Uh, again, going back to when I first started, uh, we had drills. I'd go to this part of the boat, but not really right. knowing what to do after right. that. Right. Um, modern times now, you got to get in your survival suit before you can even leave the dock. You right. You have to be able to fit. You got to know where it's at. I mean, everything right. is well choreographed. Right, right, yeah. And that's probably because all these regulations have been put into place over years. Well, th- I mean, that's part of it, and that was one of the things we learned from the Galaxy investigation was, um, uh, you know, usually when you run drills on a fishing boat, 
you do them in kind of like a compartmentalized way. You'll do a man overboard drill and then you're done. Or you'll do a abandoned ship drill and you're done. Or you'll do a fire drill and you're done. Um, what the galaxy showed was that a situation can rapidly progress where you're going to have to deal with all of those things all at once. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in the galaxy's case, it was fire and explosion, man in the water, abandoned ship, all within a you know, very compressed time frame. And uh, so the, the, the Coast Guard started, um, we, we, again, we did some analysis of, you know, what the, um, particularly in the freezer long line and the, uh, um, and the H&G trawl fleet at the time, and, you know, catcher processors, we did some analysis with, um, uh, with how often they were actually doing their drills, and we found that, you know, a lot of these boats really weren't doing drills. They weren't doing well, as frequently as they should. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be done every 30 days. And so we actually started enforcing it. So, you know, again, we reached out to the industry and we said, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is, this is the information we're getting. Um, we are going to, you know, to, to ensure you're in compliance with the fishing vessel safety regs, you're going to have to demonstrate the drills to us. And, um, and so, the, you know, um, similar things with the crab uh, boats, you know, we just, uh, um, you know, we had our list of like 50 boats that we needed to get on and we just kind of cycled through the list and, you know, be, um, before they departed, they actually had to perform drills to the Coast Guard satisfaction. And, uh, you know, and that, that, again, that was a steep learning curve uh, for a lot of boats, but... Um, it's, I it's, think it's that way for every boat now. Well, it, it we is. We can't leave. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's, uh, I mean, it kind, you know, that kind of, like, intense focus really started there, and then, you know, other, you know, other boats started doing a lot more of things like that. Um, you know, for again, for the freezer long line sector and now the Amendment 80 sector, I mean, that, that's part of their examination with the Coast Guard, is they have to, you know, have to do the drills, um, before they depart, uh, dock a lot of the, you know, um, the big companies like the Trident Seafoods, the American Seafoods, they all do very similar stuff. It's not Coast Guard observed, but they've got, you know, really highly trained safety, um, uh, you know, uh, safety managers in their companies that put every damn person in a survival suit, have them jump in the water and See, very realistic drill. Well, it, it is, because it is, but you know, if, if the Coast Guard's saying it's important, then it's important. If, if they, if they just say, well, it's a regulation, but I'm not really going to pay attention to it, you know, or I'm, um, it, it, it just took on a much, much more prominent, uh, uh, position with you know what the Coast Guard was paying attention to, mm -hmm. so yeah. So now I, I I feel like on you know um, probably not every boat, um, but uh, you know a lot of the boats out there they're really paying attention to this stuff, and I think that's why you see such a significant improvement in safety. I feel like that's where we lose less people. Yeah. I mean, uh, man overboard even. Yeah. Uh, you don't lose a lot. Right. Right. We used to lose right. a lot. Right. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. You sure do. Yeah. PFDs. Right. Make that, all that, 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 that's another, that's another, you know, well, thing. And talk about it. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's just, um, you know, for a lot of the safety stuff, there's, you know, there's some like pretty obvious equipment solutions that are already out there. PFDs is a great example. Primary um, example. Yeah. And, and so right now, if you look at fishery statistics in Alaska, um, the, the biggest source of where all the fate, not all the fatalities, but where a lot of the fatalities are occurring is in the, um, is in the set net fleet. 
right? So, so guys working in, in, in skiffs off the beach, pulling nets by hand, um, and, or in, or in skiffs, you know, in like these small boats. And, you know, these boats are, are small. They're not really required by, um, to meet the, 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 the really rigorous requirements of, of, you know, that larger boats are, are required to do. Um, and, and their issue is somebody falls in the water and they, you know, and, and the water's cold. And if you're not wearing a PFD, you're probably done. Unless you're lucky, you're probably done. Um, and it's such an easy... It, you know, it's like you can buy any kind of PFD you want. You can buy rain gear that floats. You can buy an inflatable one. You can buy, you know, buy the old, uh, you know, collar ones. You know, whatever it is that best suits your operation and what you're doing, um, that PFD is available. And I, I feel like if more, uh, you know, more people used it, particularly in the smaller boat fleets, that would, you know, you don't need new regulations. You just need to, you know, like, okay, you guys, you got to, you know, this is the tool. Use it. Most of the guys that I've heard uh, lost recently are you know, PFDs. Right. Um, it's funny to say set net fleet, especially because a few episodes ago, I can't remember which one it was, guys, but Ryan Leonhardt said that guy, his biggest fear, his his big fear was he ran out of fuel, like, on his in his skiff. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, this is scary. Stuff. Sure, yeah, yeah, so, especially you know, if it's a little, if it's a lot of waves or weather going on. I can't remember on. if he said he had a PFD on or not, but... It doesn't matter. You go right. in the water. You're the strongest man in the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter. Yeah, because that that cold water will take your strength away. Yeah, absolutely. There's no more left. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's not. You know, I mean, I think people still confuse. You know, hypothermia takes a while to set in. The first thing that happens when you know cold water immersion is you, um, if you can't control your breathing. Um, you know, immediately, you know, you, you, you plunge in the water and if you, you know, if you start doing the <laughs> and you're sucking in seawater and stuff, you're done. If you can get through that, if you can kind of keep your wits about you and get through that initial shock, you know, that, that cold water shock talk, into the talk water. Talk us through that. Um, well then, so then the, the next thing that's going to happen is, is swim failure. It's like you said, that cold water, uh, you know, it, it, it's a physiological, you know, response in your body. Your, your body knows it's cold and it starts pulling all of the blood into, into the core area. You lose your coordination of your hands and, and whatnot. And it, it's swim failure and you just might drown. You just might slip under. You know, if, you're, if, you're, um, if, you, if that doesn't happen to you, then after you know, a certain amount of time, half hour, 40 minutes or so, that's when the hypothermia sets in. That's when, you know, your, your, your body, you know, that the blood that is still, you know, still pumping through you, um, but it's now all in here, just starts getting colder and colder and colder. And then, you know, you'll, you'll probably suffer from heart failure and, and then, you know, and then that's it. But the, the big stuff that gets people is that, um, you know, if you're wearing a PFD, you don't have to worry about number one. You don't have to worry about, you know, because it's going to keep your head out of the water so you can breathe normally. And um, and you're not going to have to worry about swim failure because you're going to be floating. It's going to keep you afloat. You know, now if you're out there floating around for, for two hours, then, <laughs> then yeah, you might no, be done. But at least you've got, <laughs> it gives you some time, and time is everything. It's, it's weird how things change because um, 20 years ago, if you were the guy with the PFT on you, um, you were the guy made fun of. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Today, if you're the guy without a PFT, you're the guy going, 
You're getting razzed. Why do we have one on? It, it's been a big cultural shift on board the boats. It's huge. Yep. Yep. It's huge. Absolutely. We we are about out of time here, Chris. Okay. So before we wrap up, anything you want to finish with? Any advice? Oh Any... boy, get a fishing vessel safety exam. Um, wear your PFD. Uh, work with your local Coast Guard um, because it's all about the partnership between the fishing industry and the Coast Guard that's going to make your your boat and your fishery safer. And that even goes for your personal vessel. My yes. Coast Guard inspected. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, so all right, is that it? Yeah, go. I think so. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks this for has been coming. fun. It's been uh, we've never had a perspective from the Coast Guard side, especially. Uh-huh. Uh, it's all maritime, right? Here, which you are maritime, but uh, never th- this perspective, and especially on safety, because it keeps our guys in line. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I'd love to. You know, I mean, it, it could be fun. To, you know, one of these times to you know have me in here with you know some of the other you know folks that you've had in the past. You know. Um, uh, to, you know, have the Coast Guard, and I'm not Coast Guard anymore, I work in the fishing industry now, I, but, um, but you know, somebody who's been involved in the safety program and safety issues for a long time talking to these guys, and I, I think you'd have some pretty interesting conversations. We, we have interesting conversations every time we turn the microphone off. Yeah. I mean, everybody that comes on is like, oh, I should have said, right. or I could have done, or something, but, all right, guys, uh, this has been another episode of Galley Stories, Stories to Bring See Beyond, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too. And reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.